and we're going to look at how God has called us to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ and to be different. There's that word, say that with me. Different from this world. That is the expectation that you and I will be different from the world. Not the same, not looking like it, not going after the same things, but very different. In fact, one version, one of the prophets, what he did one day is he ran around and he did a handstand, one of my friends. And he said, we are to be like an upside down people, completely different to everybody else. And we forget that. We try to blend in, not be noticed. I want to give you some background on First Peter. This is the guy, the fisherman, the big burly guy, businessman, foot in the mouth guy that we think of him like, hothead, enthusiastic, but sometimes his enthusiasm uh, needed to have a bit more knowledge behind it. So here's the background. Let me give you the, the deal that we're writing into in this book. Because it's always important when you read a book and a verse to get the context right. So these Christians that have now, we're now 20 years after Christ had been risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. 20 years have passed. But there's a problem. Persecution had come upon those who call themselves Christians. They were feeling crushed. They were feeling overwhelmed. They were feeling devastated. And these waves of feelings that just keep coming over them, one after the other, washing over those Christians who were suffering. And suffering had many forms in this book, in the context of this book, where Peter's about to write, and we're going to dig into. There was physical abuse going on. There was debilitating disease striking people down. There was social ostracism. And there was persecution. Now the pain that these people were feeling was so intense and the anguish, a person could be tempted to turn back, to surrender, and to give in. And many of the first century followers of Christ were suffering because they believed in and they were obeying the commands of Jesus Christ. And beginning in Jerusalem, the persecution spread out to the rest of the world where these Christians were. And it climaxed in a place called Rome in Italy. And the reason for that is Rome had determined to get rid of the Christ ones. That's what they call them. Secular history calls them as Christ ones. Those who refused to bow the knee to Caesar. You dare? You dare not bow to Caesar? You death. There's only one Lord they were crying. It was Caesar. And the Christians said, uh-uh, that is not right. They, they were making, the Romans were making a truth claim. Caesar is God. And Christians said, no, he's not. And they stood up for it. And that cost many of them their lives. This is the context, the milieu in which we're going to be looking. Peter himself knew firsthand the, the, the persecution. He'd been beaten 
I mean, you know, you might know, I've, I've taken a few knocks to the head in my life and other places I won't even speak about. In many fights. But this guy had been beaten and stoned, jailed and threatened often. He'd seen fellow Christians die. Feel that for a minute. Die. For their faith. And the church scattered. But he knew Christ and his attitude is, I don't care what you do to me. I know what I saw and I am sticking to this till the very end and beyond. Because this is not the end. That was his attitude. So Peter wrote the church, scattered and suffering for their faith, feeling that pain, but he wrote to them to give them comfort and hope and urging them to continually follow him with full loyalty. Now Peter's often caricatured as this brash, uneducated fisherman, but I've got to tell you, that's, I understand where you get that from, but the other side of it is he's actually very sharp. In fact, in this book that we're going to look at in the next four weeks, you're going to see Peter hit those Christians with some very grand themes and encouraging themes of the gospel. Things like election, foreknowledge, sanctification, obedience, the blood of Christ. He talks about the Trinity. He talks about the revelation of the coming of Christ, hope that we have in Christ. And we're about to get started there, but 1 Peter, just for those of you who are taking notes, were, was written somewhere between 62 and 64 AD, during the reign of Nero. And those of you who've done classics and history know about this guy. Christians were facing extreme red-line persecution. This guy was a nutter, much like Kim Jong-un. He killed his own mother. This, this is the sort of dirty work this guy was. He killed his own mother. Then he killed his first wife. And there's a bit, of con- a bit of controversy, but it looks like he killed his second li- wife and some of the kids as well. This is the sort of guy we're dealing with. Anyway, this guy wanted to build a brand new palace on that piece of property right there. Trouble was, it was all covered with buildings. So guess what happened? Not long after that, all of a sudden, a big fire came along and cleared the space and burnt in the exact area where he wanted to have his palace built. And the senator said, no. He said, stuff you. And so the idea was that he actually burnt these homes down. Now, when that happened, the heat literally came on Nero. So you know what he did? He blamed the Christians. They did it. They started that fire. So history blames Nero for starting the fire in his insatiable lust for land. And he blames the Christians. And this starts the empire's first great persecution against Christians. Mm, yeah. And this audience, we're good. So, for those of you who haven't read the history there, he'd do hideous things. And I'm just going to just hint at them. He'd take Christians, dip them in wax and oil, and light his long right-of-way up with these Christians and light them up at night as candles. This is the sort of mad dog he was. For others, he wanted a bit more active entertainment. He'd take animal skins still dripping with blood, tie them to people, and let mad dogs go for them. This is the sort of madman he was. And this is the context into which this book of Peter is written. Does that give you a bit of context for the suffering that was going on there and the absolute insanity that was happening? Right. Who is this message written for? This message is written for two groups of people. 
in First Peter. The first one are those who are hurting and facing trial. See, life can seem very unfair from time to time. Anybody ever experienced that? Seems unfair. And you wish that you could change it. And things come into your life that you and I don't have answers for, right? We just don't. Maybe you're trying to conceive. It's just not happening. Maybe you're going through a financial trial and you just can't make those bills work and it doesn't look like there's any honourable way out. Or maybe you're battling cancer. This week I had a little bit of a an interesting, it's very, very minor, but it gave me a little bit of insight. Several weeks ago, I was in the States. Let me just take a segue. Several weeks I was in the States, and my brother, goodness knows what he was doing, he was peering on my back, and he goes, what is that? He's an ambulance officer, so he took a photograph of that and sent it to me. I looked at him, hmm, that not look good, because not often you look at your own back, right? Especially right around here, you can't see. <clears throat> so anyway, I whip up to see my good old mate, Trev, and Trev goes, that doesn't look the best, Buckles. So my doctor's one of the old styles. He said, get your shit off right now. And he just goes, jab, stab, and he takes a sample. Ships it off. Stitches me up, off we go. And that was all done in less than five minutes. He's very quick. So um, I'm sitting there waiting. The days go by. A week goes by. Nine days go by. Ten days go by. And I call up and said, that's odd. It hasn't come back. So I'm starting to just, uh, just low grade. And then I'm on the phone, and next minute I see Trevor calling me. I go, why the heck is Trevor calling? Because normally if it's nothing, just the nurse calls, right? So Trevor calls, he says, Ian, it's me. I've got some news for you. I'm going, oh my gosh. I said, well, I'm ready. He's, and then, you, and then you, he said, it's just severely damaged. There's no cancer. But for a brief glance, for just a nanomillisecond, I thought, how many people... Wait for that call from the doctor. And it is the doctor, it's not the nurse. And he says, I've got bad news. You have cancer. Maybe for some of you, the trial and the pain is you have a child who's making ridiculously unwise decisions and they think it's my life, I can make any decisions I want. But it's affecting you and your family and your extended family. So the first group of people is those who are facing a trial or hurting. And the second people that this is addressed to is those who will one day go through a trial because I'm always of the opinion you're either just going into a trial, you're in the middle of one, or you're just going out of one. <laughs> That's the way it seems to be in my life. And that just about covers everybody. So with that, and the context firmly in mind, let's pick this up in First Peter chapter 1. This letter is from Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that word there, foreigners, in the Greek is emphasizing a temporary residence, a foreign national a resident alien. In the United States, we have a legal status called a resident alien. That means I'm on the property, I'm on the United States soil, but I'm not a citizen. 
And in the same way, Peter's getting after that. We, as Christians, are resident aliens. We are on this planet, but we are not of this planet. This is not our citizenship down here. Peter is emphasizing here, this world is not your home. He's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a stranger to this world. You are, an old word, sojourner. In other words, that means you are just passing through like a hitchhiker on his way through. That's the whole thought here. You're an alien in this world, serving a heavenly God, passing through the temporary world into an eternal dwelling place, safe for you and secured for you by Jesus Christ. This world, he's saying, is not your home. Therefore, you will be different from this world. Different from this world as a foreigner in a strange land. Because you're not from here, you will not live like those. You'll have different customs. As followers of Jesus, we are not called to look like the world. We're to have different, there's that word, values. Question number one. Are our values different from the world around us? Or are they very difficult to distinguish and differentiate and discriminate between them? Different values. If you are a Christian, you'll be a different type of dad with a different type of commitment to your marriage. And the way that you raise your children will be different. And the way that you invest your money will be different. For the reasons, will be different. And the way that you invest your time will be different. Not slaving away to the same end that the world does. You are from a different land. You'll have different standards. That means, let me put it real plain. No sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Some people tell me, or try to tell me, that it's all the scientific age that's causing young people to slip away. It's not. It's not science, it's sex. I'm just telling you, it is not science, it is sex. People can't wait. If you are a Christian, you have different standards. Don't try, and, and, and you know what? Here's my honest to God thought. And if you are in that position, it is better that you not try and pr- pr- rub it off as being a Christian and still continue shacking up with, your, with you, your other person and showing up for church and praising God. God, does, God sees right through that. It is better to have integrity and say, whoops, I'm doing this wrong. I know it's wrong. And, 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 and not continue to pretend that you're living a Christian life. There has to be an authenticity. Christians have different standards. They don't blend them. Christians have different goals. Here's a good question. Are my goals different to the world's goals? Or are they so similar it's hard to distinguish? Christians have different ambitions. There's a good question that God seems to be putting before us. What are your ambitions for God? Or is your bandwidth 100% soaked up with your ambition? Are they different? So, why should we be different? 
not like the rest of the world because this world is not your home. You're called to be different. And we're going to look at four different things over the weeks ahead. We're going to look at how our faith makes a difference in trials. Next week, we're going to look at different values in an unholy culture. Third week, we're going to go how we're to be different. It's a calling in a dark world. And fourth, the last week, is going to be how to live with a different perspective when you're persecuted. Now remember, going back to who Peter's writing to in verse 1 through 6. It would almost appear shocking what we're about to read when you understand that context. He says this to hooting and persecuted Christians. Verse 6. So be truly glad. So be truly glad. Is anybody with me? There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. In other words, God may not take these temporary trials away. Are you up for that? Or did you think Christianity was a free ticket with no persecution, no dramas, no trials? But there's wonderful joy ahead. Then he says in verse 7, These trials will show that your faith is, what's that word? Genuine. That is the heart of what Peter's getting after here. These trials have a purpose. To sort out the wheat from the chaff. To show that your faith is actually genuine. Now notice, logically, if there's a genuine faith, there's a false faith. And it is my great concern that both in New Zealand, Australia and America, countries which I have spent some time living in, there are many who are semi-regular in church that believe they're a Christian, but their faith is not genuine. Can I be that direct? And one of the biggest challenges I see in the Western church today is what I want to term a false faith. And we need to pay very close attention to this. There are three types of false faith. The first one is the inherited faith. You know, this one. Well, my mum, well, she was a Christian. And my dad, well, he was a Baptist. You know, and by the way, I was baptised as a baby. So I must be a Christian, right? Or the other angle is, well, hang on, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Mormon, I'm not a, a Muslim, therefore I must be a Christian. There are not many options left, right? So I must be. I talked to a young lady about seven weeks ago who was raised in a Christian home, regularly went to church, and she came to the place where she was saying, I'm not sure I believe what I heard back then anymore. Friends, that is an inherited faith. Her parents surely own theirs. But this little lamb, not so little, she's in her twenties, had inherited her parents' faith and now she was not sure it was hers. The second type of false faith, and Jesus talks a lot about this, this is one to take slowly when you read this yourself, is the shallow faith he talks about in Matthew chapter 13. The shallow faith. You know, he talks about the farmer who goes out to sow. And some seed grows, some does. Some grew roots, but the problem was with this one, the roots weren't deep enough. 
They weren't deep enough. They had shallow faith. And the Bible literally specifically nails what causes this. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. The love of things in this world prevented that seed from being fruitful as the master determined it should be fruitful. And it choked out the very life of the plant and it dies because its roots weren't deep enough. And that's where some of you are. Some of you in this room will not be engaged in faith in 12 months' time. You won't be seen in any church. You won't be involved in a small group. You won't be praying or reading his word. We as people drift. And we need to take a step forward. Forward before the devil takes you out the back door. Now listen carefully. Church is not listening to a podcast or a YouTube video. Church is the body of Christ where we gather corporately to worship God, to strengthen one another in the flesh, and to attack the world with the love of Jesus together. This really matters. Jesus died for the church. He's returning for the church. And he said, I will build my church. Because the church matters to Jesus. It has to matter to us. So we're not going to have a shallow faith. And the third one, which I see more and more these days, is what I term a conditional faith. And it's those who say, well, I believe in God. I love God with all of my heart as long as things go my way. As long as things are sweet. Not too much pressure. And you know some folks like that. You know, somebody's business goes, or somebody's wife leaves them. And they go, well, how can I believe a God who let that happen? That's conditional faith. Conditional faith is not the real deal. And I believe that God brought some of you here today to change that conditional faith and to challenge it, to move it into a genuine faith. Because trials reveal the depth of my faith. That it's genuine. And it's not just false. So how can God use your trials? Number one, trials can reveal and can strengthen your faith. Reveal and strengthen your faith. Again, back to that, oh, I highlight that part of that verse, 1 Peter 1 7. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. No fear with the Christians, merry detail Christians, as I call them. A faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted because that's one of the things I found. Leaders that endure are often leaders who've been through pain and trial and they've learned to endure to the end. Peter's faith had previously been tested. He blew it, remember? He failed, and then he was strengthened, redeemed, made new, and he was completely transformed from what he was before. Jesus speaking here. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon. It's not you, Simon. (laughs) Simon Peter. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. 
He wants to test you to see what you're made of. Don't ever think that your spiritual enemy is wanting your best. He's not. He's wanting to take you away from the things of God. But Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, see, in his foreknowledge, he knew this. In other words, you're not always going to get right, Peter, but when you do, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. Now, if you've been through the mill, even recently, are you using that experience to strengthen other people, or are you just keeping that to yourself? Are you using the experience to strengthen other Christians in their faith? Because there's purpose in your pain, and God never wastes a hurt. How did God use a trial to transform Peter? Think about this. Peter in his early years was obnoxious, he was compulsive, he was cocky, very inconsistent, hot-headed, foot-in-the-mouth type of a guy. In the latter years, Peter was faithful, devoted to the very end, patient, bold, consistent. So much so that history tells us that he was crucified upside down because he didn't classify himself worthy to be crucified the same manner that his master had been. So what happened? How come Peter was pushed over by a little girl with a Snoopy lunchbox and bold? Remember that? At the crucifixion? What happened? And to now he's prepared to die. What happened? God used trials to strengthen him. The first time, Peter was so pumped for Jesus, so cocky and prideful, he said, huh, all those guys, they may desert you, Lord, those bunch of wimps, but I never will. That's pretty prideful, so be careful. Be where lest you think you stand, lest you fall, the scriptures say. So that was his attitude. Then what happened? Straight after that, Peter denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times when a young little girl said to him, I think you were with him. Oh, no, 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 you got the wrong guy. Remember that one? A little girl. Then he sees Jesus was going through his trial and crucifixion, and somehow Peter and him, I imagine in my mind's eye, but he sees the eyes of Jesus and Peter's heart is ripped out. He's just denied the guy he spent all that time with, knows the truth, but he was scared for his own skin. Jesus is brutally crucified, dies on the cross for Peter's sins and our sins. Then three days later, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, and Christ is risen. Now, in John 21, you see this very meaningful encounter after this very terrible denial. Flip the future pages to John 21, 16. Three times Jesus says this, do you love me? Three times he denied him. Three times he says, do you love me? And he actually says one of them, do you even like me as a friend? That's the word philio. Do you do that? Here it is. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He gives, Jesus gives him an assignment. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. 
And it's one thing to say that you love Jesus, but the real test is, are you willing to serve him? Talk is cheap. Jesus doesn't take superficial answers. That's why, have you ever had that experience? My mother used to do this. She'd ask me a question once and I'd give her an answer. Second time she'd ask me the same question. And the third time I'd go, whoa, I better pay attention to this question. She means business, I'm missing something here. And Jesus says, do you love me? Not a superficial surface answer. It's like your wife. You can say, I love you, honey. And you know that doesn't cut it, right? Because <laughs> it's automatic parroting. There's no guts behind it. No passion behind it. What happens shortly after this? The guy who messed up, Peter, after he gets his life right, and he says, that's it, I saw what I saw, I don't care what happens to me, preaches on Pentecost, 3,000 people come to Christ, born in the kingdom, and Peter's faith now is as solid as a rock, Petros. So what happened? God used the trial to strengthen his faith, to change him to whom he was going to become, so trials can reveal and strengthen my faith. That's why James said this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, this is why, this is why you should consider it joy, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, a godly characteristic. And God can use it to produce spiritual perseverance in your life. And if you're in pain right now, know this, that God never wastes a hurt. And then finish verse 4 here. Let perseverance finish its work. Don't cut it off too soon. Don't pull the cake out of the oven too soon. Let the thing finish. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So trials taken light rightly, produce a sterling quality of endurance. And that is the will of the Spirit. Not, get me out of this mess. Which we're often tempted to pray. That is what Scripture says. Let perseverance finish the work so you may be mature. Mature Christians have been through trial and come through with a deep, heartfelt sense of gratitude. They're not always looking for the easy way out. Second, trials can draw you closer to God. Trials can draw you closer to God. 1 Peter 8, 9, New Living Translation. You love God? He's saying to them now, you love God, even though you've never seen him, like I have. I saw him. I had breakfast with him many, many times. I slept next to him. I saw him in the flesh with his sandals and a beard. But you haven't seen him. This is 20 years after the resurrection. Remember that. So Peter had an advantage. He'd seen the guy. He'd seen him before. He saw him die. Don't even mention it again. That was so embarrassing that I, I walked away. And then I saw him after. I will never forget that. I don't care what happens. So he had an advantage. He'd known. He'd talked with Jesus. He'd questioned him. 
Yet Peter understood the people he was writing to now, that most believers had not even seen Jesus in the flesh. They were in the minority at that stage. And then he says, though you do not see him now, you trust him. Commendation, commendation, commendation. Remember, though, these folks that he's writing to, maybe their cousin just got burnt last night as a candle. Very tough situation. And he commends their faith because they believed and loved without even seeing the object of their faith. And I'm sure Peter, in the back of his mind, was remembering the words of Jesus to another disciple. Who in John 20 said, Thomas... Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is the essence of faith. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, Peter says. And he says, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. That, friends, is a definition of mature Christian faith. And that can only come from heaven, by his spirit. A joy for which we do not have words to adequately express and describe this heavenly attitude that settles our soul, that calms our minds, that gives us peace beyond human comprehension in a chaotic world and an unfair world. So when you're grieving, even though you're hurting, and even though you're afraid, and even though it's dark, and even though they may be coming for you, you can still have this glorious, inexpressible joy. And he says, this is the neat part. Look at this, verse 9. The reward for trusting in him will be the salvation of your souls. That is what we call the gospel. Let's read that again. In fact, would you do me a favor right now? Everybody, let's read that part, verse 9. The reward for trusting him, read that loud with me. The reward for trusting him will be. That is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is. And what I hope today you will understand is the good news is not that God saves us from our trials. That is not the good news. John 16.33 says this. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation slash trials. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. It is not the good news that God saves us from our trials. He allows us to go through them to develop our character. The good news is that God saves our souls and forgives us from our sins. And that is really, really, really good news. God never said, I will deliver you from all our troubles. In fact, I am going to do a series, God never said. Because there's a whole bunch of them out there which are wrong. God never said, I will deliver you from all your troubles. He never said, you will never have a migraine. He didn't say that. He didn't say that you wouldn't have financial difficulty and that things will be unfair from time to time and that person at work wouldn't drive you crazy. He never said that. Or, neither did he say, I'm going to have a go at this one now this morning too, he neither did he say that God would never give you more than you can handle. 
that there's a terrible misquotation of a different verse. It's a misinterpretation of a verse that says God will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. The Bible says, never says that he, will, um, that he won't give you more than you can. And actually, I'm convinced he does, so that you have to rely on him. Because when you're depending upon yourself, you tend to forget about God. When you're hurting, you draw close to him. When you're desperate, let me tell you, I have been desperate. And those are the times all pretenses gone I'm, my nose is in the carpet. I'm getting carpet burned. God help me. I'm in a mess. And I can't get out of this. I've come to the end of myself. It's more than I can handle. So let's be honest. When you think you can handle life, what we do is we act like we don't need him. We have our own plans, our own agendas. He doesn't come into it. And you just do life without him. I am convinced... There are times when God will allow you to be weak. And in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. And it's only when you've got nothing left that you realize that he's all you need. It's only at those times. You get to a place where you're so low that all you can do is look up. And he's your sole help. And in him you find that he is good and when you press into him, you too can experience a glorious and inexpressible joy. So friends, our faith is not based on what we see. Our faith is based on who God is. Hard times in our life can bring us closer to God. And we have a supernatural faith that the goodness of God will stay with us. If you're here today and you're hurting... It's because God loves you. I want to encourage you to take a step forward. Draw near to him because the Bible says if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And God loves you and he wants to understand that you're not experiencing a trial because you're a bad person. Or you necessarily did something wrong. But he also wants you to understand that he can use that trial to strengthen you and to conform you to the image of his son Jesus Christ. Look at the trial he went through. Let's take a moment and pray together. Some of you today have sensed the Holy Spirit convicting you that perhaps you're living a faith that's not genuine, a false faith. Perhaps it's inherited faith. It's not your own. Or maybe you realize you've been kind of dealing with God and it's a conditional faith. If you do this, then I'll do that. The Holy Spirit may have shown some of you and you may have recognized that you are not fully following Jesus Christ. Or you may appear to be a Christian. And everybody that you know may even think you are. But the Holy Spirit, through his powerful word, has shown you that you do not have deep roots. And God has brought you here today because he loves you. And he wants you to put him number one in your life because that's how you will finally be made whole. 
Today is a day when you can put that right before God. It's a day to repent of lukewarmness. And like Peter, fully commit your life to Christ and serve him seriously. Not from a minimum commitment perspective. Others here, for the first time, maybe you recognized your need for Jesus Christ for the very first time. And you may feel like you're really far from God and wonder if he'd ever would accept you. Friend, take a step toward him today. Just come to him as you are. You don't have to fix anything. You have to come with an open heart and a soft heart and say, I'm sorry. You're here today because he loves you. When you call upon the name of Jesus, who is perfect in every way, who died and rose again, he will hear your prayer. He will forgive your sin and he will make you brand new. Not a better version of you, but a different version of you. He'll completely forgive you and you'll become a new person, a different person in Christ. Let's all agree, no matter where we are, in prayer and in our minds say Heavenly Father take my life I give it to you today Jesus save me forgive me make me new fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can know you serve you and follow you completely with my heart. Help me be different from this world so I can completely live for you. My life is not my own. I give it to you in Jesus' name. And all those who wanted to said, Amen. God bless you.